Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Museum at FIT's Fashion Culture Series. I am so excited and personally thrilled to uh, speak this evening about the great Norman Norell. And we have one of our special speakers who I'll introduce in a minute to thank for that. Let me start by introducing uh, the people that we have on stage here. Um, I'm really thrilled to welcome, first of all, Ellen Saltzman, the retailer and merchant extraordinaire. She's been a senior vice president and fashion director. at all the great stores, and, and, and she brings so much knowledge, and we're thrilled because this is her first Museum at FIT program. So welcome, Ellen, thank you. One of our great favorites is our friend Stan Herman, also fabulous designer. Uh, former president of the Council of Fashion Designers of America and fabulous tennis player amongst everything else, so there we are. If you ever wanna take up a match. And I'm also honored to have my dear friend, America's greatest couturier, author, artist, Ralph Rucci. And you'll get a special treat because Ralph wrote the introduction to the book and it's absolutely as poignantly beautiful as his work. But really the man of the hour while we speak of Norman Norell is my wonderful friend, Jeffrey Banks. Um, I've long admired Jeffrey. Award-winning designer, multiple book author, and now curator. I don't know how many crowns he wears. Uh, he's tireless, he's passionate, he's really the reason we're here tonight, paying homage to this great designer. I will also tell you that when I did an exhibition called Ivy Style, we were very fortunate to get material from many designers, and the one everybody voted I like the best was Jeffrey's. So really, outstanding designer on top of everything else. Um, I think what I'd like to do is start, really, Jeffrey, with you. Let's just jump in, and why don't you explain to everybody how this whole process started, the beginning, and, and how you found yourself at this point. Well, I, I, I guess the whole thing started as a child. Um, I loved Narelle's clothes um, from the time I was able to, you know, read Vogue, and, and I mean, I must have been 10, 11 years old when I first discovered his clothes. I, I didn't know much about him. It was the days before there was an internet, but I would go to the library every Saturday, uh, and I'd be waiting when the library opened, and I would go to Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, and I would pull out every mention of Norman Norell I could find, and then I would make the librarians pull out every magazine or every in those days, there weren't any book, real books about him, but lots of magazines, and I would read every article. And um, Patricia loves this story, so I'll tell it. I have to tell um, My parents, I was on vacation with my parents. I was about 12, I think, and one, I think we went to Canada on vacation, and one of the ladies' chat shows in, in Washington uh, did a, a, a promo and they said that Norman Norell, they were going to have a 10 minute Norman Norell video of one of his fashion shows in New York in black and white with no sound. And I made my parents come home from vacation two <laughs> days early because that was before we had VCRs. 
My father was not happy with me, but he did it anyway. Um, so I've always loved him, and I was shocked that no one had ever written a book about him. Um, there have been anthologies of American fashion, uh, where he has, of course, been included with Claire McArdle and Bonnie Cashin and, you know, the other greats of, of American fashion, but there'd never been a whole book devoted to him. And I thought, if I don't do this, no one will. Um, and, of course, it's getting to the point where a lot of the people who knew Norell or worked with Norell are no longer with us or are slowly fading. So That's I felt... <laughs> so I felt the, the, I had to do it, and that's what happened. And then, as fortune would have it, because usually when there are museum shows, they're planned years in advance. Um, and I thought I'd really take a leap of faith and talk to Patricia and Valerie Steele and see whether, in fact, they might want to do a show that coincided with the book's launch. And strangely enough, they said yes. Um, as it turns out, one of the first shows Valerie Steele ever did in the early, I think it was around 1990, 89, 99. Even before she was at the museum. Yeah, um, was a very small Norell show, which I saw, um, but it was one woman's clothing. Um, and it was, um, I felt as someone who loved Norell, it wasn't big enough, it wasn't good enough. Uh, not knowing that it was her first show, and so she was actually eager to revisit the subject matter, luckily for me, and the stars aligned, and here we are. Exactly, exactly, Rob. Speaking of stars aligning, you brought in the fabulous Mr. Rucci, and you wrote such a beautiful introduction, Ralph. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, because you touch on words like perfection and quiet, all of this relating to it, but you took it to such a poetic level, and I'm wondering, Ralph, if you could illuminate that a little bit for Thank us. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you read the forward to the book yet, but at first I felt very daunted when Jeffrey asked me to write the forward because how do you condense into words the thoughts you have about an artist of this caliber? Because his metier, his work, was making clothes. But to arrive, as Patricia just used the word, to that moment of distillation where the clothes are just one clear thought and one level of precision, it's a very silencing type of, type of act. And I think there's, a, there's profound silence in others in that genre, like Monsieur Balenciaga, Madame Gray, Charles James, you know, people like that. And uh, you knew what you got when you saw a Norel collection, the perfection of the way a collar was mounted to a coat or the waist of a dress, the wool jerseys, and how he made them so modern, and the f mounting of a sleeve in a coat, and then, of course, the fantasies for evening. So I use the word quiet as a, uh, as a rest point in the forward that I wrote, because that moment of quietude occurs consistently in the work of Norell. You know, I think uh, one of the things that Jeffrey taught me about this, and as you can tell, the man knows nothing about Norell, um, is that, and it was very surprising, I knew that he was a master and brought couture quality to ready-to-wear, but I didn't realize that nobody could custom order. Everything had to be through the retail system. And Ellen, I was wondering if you could talk to us, because this is something I think we're losing a lot of. We do not have the great merchants working with the great designers in the same way anymore, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, what you think about I all of this. I, 
Do you have to do this? Do I have to turn it on? I think it's on. Hi. Um, I was at Saks Fifth Avenue as fashion director in the 1960s and 70s. We did not carry Norman Norell. He would not sell to us. Um, wow. And I, I had dinner last night with somebody called Sonia Caproni, who was the fashion director of iMagnet in California. He did sell to them, and she said it was an enormous business. For some reason, he wouldn't sell to Saks in New York, and I don't know who he, had, who he sold to in New York. Well, he, he sold to Baumwoteller, he sold to Bergdorf Goodman, and actually, in the end, he sold to Saks. He sold to Saks. From six he waited for me to leave. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and Saks did a big big deal about it. It was after after the perfume came out right. in 1968 that he started to sell to Saks, uh, very tentatively at first, and then on a on a very big level. Um, I think. Norell was very, very devoted to his stores, which is why he did not let women come up and buy wholesale. He felt it would be disloyal to the, to the stores. Now, if Lauren Bacall wanted to come up and see the collection, and maybe she wanted to, to get a dress and for nothing. color. Or <laughs> Always for nothing. <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> or a different length, Norman would say, sure, you can come up. And you know he'd take the measurements and so forth, and he'd order the different color fabric but he would charge her through a store. She got a bill from Baumatella or a bill from Bergdorf Goodman um, because he felt if he went around the stores and, 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 and did wholesale that he would kill his business and his stores had been loyal to him for decades and decades, so he would never do that. There's no such thing today. Yeah, no, no, no. unfortunately. Um, you know, I think one of the touching stories um, we heard Jeffrey mention earlier from his childhood, his father making the vacation sacrifice. But Stan, you also have some incredible stories, too, about what it was like with Norman Norell as the sort of king of fashion at this time, when you were first starting well, out. I do, I do. Um, I, I'm probably here because I do remember it. And for those of you out there who um, are sitting in this glorious room, which wasn't here then at that time, uh, it was a very small campus back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, actually, I was there. <laughs> and when you had a designer who stepped away from the crowd, he became king of all his domain. Uh, it was my great desire to be one of his boys. Uh, there were six of them, six designers who he chose to have lunch with all the time at Schraff's. <laughs> at Schraff's. At they Traffs? used to wear the cutest uniforms at Schraff's, very little, little white things. Uh, I was never invited, but I used, to, I used to, it was up on 45th Street. We didn't have restaurants down here. They expect, we had a lot of, of egg cream shops, but we didn't have, we didn't have any restaurant. But Norman was famous because he, he had this little group of guys who were up there, and if you were deified by him, wow. That Stan, was, who that were was they? It. Who were the boys? Well, I kind of remember two names. Frank Adams was the leader. You wouldn't even remember the names. None of them became famous designers, but they were the chosen at that time. Uh, he, he, it was a small world. It was a teeny tiny world. He was at the top of his game as a student, as a young person. First time I saw Norman Norell, I was sitting in back of him at the theater. He had a terrible haircut. 
It was, it was, I kept counting all the, the, the hairs, and I kept saying, that's Norman Norell. That's Norman Norell. That's how I felt about it. It was, I couldn't breathe. It was so, <laughs> so now, you see Ralph Lauren, so that's Ralph Lauren. <laughs> it's a different world. It's a different world. But I'm here to tell you about the past. They can tell you about the future. Yeah. But I think, you know, Stan, you actually made a point, as I think Jeffrey did with all his research, is that American fashion was very, very different then. We were very Paris-dependent. Um, every aspect, and I do have to ask all of us to make sure we talk into the microphone, because apparently some people in the back can't hear can't us. Hear? Okay. Yeah. Um, everything. The uh, department stores, the magazines, every aspect of this was driven by that component, and he really shifted the ground, the foundation for American fashion. It was a paradigmatic shift. And I'm wondering if you all can talk about that as well, how it moved from being so monopolized to becoming something very different. Real respect for American fashion, I think, changed. Hmm. Ellen? The one thing I remember. Um, I'm so sorry. Hello, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> She's been dating him for a long time. <laughs> um, the European shows came before the American shows. Right. right. And the American designers, most of them, would wait for Europe to show. And sometimes I would preview the American shows before I went to Europe. And they were showing things at a certain length, and Paris showed it at this length. So suddenly I came back, and the American clothes were that length. That yeah. length. Yeah. Um, there was not very much respect for American fashion. Right. But Stan, you said that a lot had changed as a result of Norell. Well, I, I think Jeffrey said it the other day. It was very interesting. Norman Norell died just at the right time. He left this business just at the right time. He built a canopy for himself that was so extraordinary. It was very hard for anybody else to move into it. He was so pure. He was so extraordinarily focused that the industry was not that way anymore. We were deifying very quick talents that were coming, coming out of nowhere. Sportswear was born in the 70s. Sportswear, I don't think Norman, um, in a sense, knew what sportswear, sportswear was. was right. But he would have been very, Jeffrey said it better than anybody, he would have been very unhappy if he had lived. I think he would have been so frustrated. I just want to say one thing, but I don't want to forget it. I, I, if you haven't seen the show across the way, You'll find a favorite when you go in there, but I plead with you to look at a green double-breasted coat that sits toward the back of the room. Back left side. Back, uh, back left, left side. Left side. <laughs> right. They'll draw you a map. I, I can only tell you, for those of you who love fashion, just sit, I get, I get emotional about it. You just sit there and you look at that coat and you're so proud that you're a designer, that you, that you chose a profession there are very, there are very few things like that. I really beg you to go over and look at that coat. And one thing I, I want to something. I think it's so important for all of us to realize there are two, and then a third, the younger one, American designers that really showed Europe genius talent exists in this country. Mr. Norell and Jimmy Galanos, without question. And remember that Jimmy Galanos and Norman Norell would show after all of the Americans after the European collections and the American collections. And Ellen and everybody had to track back to, to New York to see Galanos and Norell. And then the third one that gave an American point of view to European high fashion, well, I think was Halston. 
but, but that was a whole purification in American fashion. But the caliber, the level of dressmaking and technique that Jimmy and Norman Norell called ready to wear was unparalleled. It was European couture. One of the things I want to mention, I'm going to ask Jeffrey to elaborate, is our feeling here at FIT is that it was not, the show's not just about Norman Norell, it's Norman through the eyes of a designer. And the video also has Ralph and Stan on it. So two designers with Jeffrey talking about a designer. But there's another person we have to thank because there are 98 ensembles in the show and 51 of them belong to a gentleman named Kenneth Poole who is also a designer. And he has over 100 Norels, they're pristine. But you and Kenneth both had the same belief that Norell's career was kind of inverse of a lot of designers. The best work he did was the last 12 years of his career, not the first 12. And Jeffrey, I'm wondering if you could speak to, about that and explain your curatorial philosophy about well, this. Well, one of the things I loved about Norell's clothes was the consistency. I mean, when he made a pocket, whether it was a square pocket or a angled pocket or a patch pocket, it was always beautifully constructed and it was consistent, the way he placed the pocket, the perfect place, um, the way he shaped a collar, as Ralph talked about, or set in a sleeve. And this happened throughout his career. Uh, he's, he was born in 1900. He started, he came to New York at 19 and went to Pratt and went to Parsons and studied illustration and design. And then he, um, he started working for Paramount Pictures, which was in Astoria, Queens, before Paramount was in, in, in California. And at 21 years of age, he designed Rudolph Valentino's clothes in a movie called The Sainted Devil. And there's a, uh, there's a picture in the book of, from that film, and, and Valentino is dressed as a sort of gaucho, and he has this uh, shirt, which has this very full balloon sleeve in black and white stripe. Now, I found a sketch of Norell's, a vaudeville sketch that he had done 10 years before that as, as a real kid with that same uh, blousy sleeve. And then when you go over and see the show, you'll see that sleeve again. So when he found something he loved, he did it over and over and over again and refined it and, and made it look fresh every single time he did it. And um, uh, that's one of the things I loved about his work. He, he, worked for, uh, he worked for Paramount for a couple of years. In 1923, he designed the costumes for uh, Gloria Swanson in a movie called Zaza, silent film, where she played a French temptress. And the clothes are, are, are kind of his show business uh, side of him. They're very flamboyant and over the top, but that's what the character called for. Um, when Paramount Pictures moved to California, he didn't want to move. He stayed in New York, and then he started working for Hattie Carnegie. And that's where he really became a real clothing designer, because she was all about having clothes designed, custom clothes designed for her customers, who would come in, who were very rich Park Avenue ladies, even during the Depression. They would say, my husband just bought me an emerald necklace and I need a dress to go with it. Yes. And so he would figure out the neckline that worked with it and he would custom design that. He was part of a stable of 12 designers. He quickly rose to become the number one designer working under Hattie Carnegie. But then when he started his own business, when he left Hattie Carnegie, uh, which is a long story, but basically involved a fight. She 
what uh, she was engaged, Hetty Carnegie was engaged to design the clothes for um, a play, a musical called uh, Lady in the Dark, which starred Gertrude Lawrence. And uh, Gertrude Lawrence played a fashion editor who was under hypnosis. Apparently, in the, in the we know that type. <laughs> apparently, we will reenact. Apparently, the going to a shrink in the 40s was like the really chic thing to do, and everybody was doing it. And that's what the play Thank was God about. Thank God I was in the 50s. It was a good show, by the way. It was a very good show. And and Danny Kaye got his big start in that right. show. Um, so. Uh, Norman did a group of sketches. Hattie looked at the sketches. She said, these are too flamboyant, toned them down, and then showed them to Gertrude Lawrence. He disobeyed her and showed the original sketches. And of course, Gertrude Lawrence says, I love these, do them. So Hattie was not pleased with Norman. They had a parting of the ways, and he had to go look for a job. And uh, Anthony Trainer, who was a big manufacturer of much better make clothing on, on 7th Avenue. Heard about Norell, they met Norell. Uh, he, he said to Norell, I want to hire you, but if you want your name on the label, you're going to have to take less money. And Norell said, um, OK, I'd rather have my name on the label. So the, the label was trained in Norell. Right. And then he retired in 1959, by which time Norell had been working with him for you know a couple of decades. And at 60 years of age, Norell bought out, uh, with private investors, bought out Anthony Trainer, and, and, and for the first time, the label read Norman Norell, New York. And I truly believe that at 60 years of age, he had this enormous burst of creativity, and the best work he did was from 1960 until he died in 1972. Which I just want to say that it proves the point. The times were so different then that you could nurture yourself as a designer. When you started, I know when I started, it took eight years for me to get out of the back room. Uh, that's how it worked. You just didn't jump into fame. I think maybe two people that I knew, Arnold Scazzi was one. But there are very few people who had instant fame. So it, at 60, he was a young designer. I think that's so incredible. Yeah. At 60 today, they put you to bed yeah. Yeah. without clothes. <laughs> but I think this is the, one of the other things that we were talking about. And Ralph, you experienced this certainly as a couturier, is the slower evolutionary process of design. You can't come up with the perfect idea when you're 27. It may take you 30 years to get it just right. No question. And um, Jeffrey, I was wondering if you could also um, illuminate some of the major themes in the show and some of the ideas and, and where the genesis is and where he wound up in a lot of cases. Well, Norell's favorite period of fashion was the 1920s. He was in his 20s, in the 20s. And of course, that was a big shift in fashion, you know, both in terms of undergarments, loosening up of, of things, the shortening of skirts, the sort of free and easy women who would smoke in public and bob their hair and rouge their knees. All of that, you know, sort of fit into, you know, being youthful. And so he harked back to the 20s over and over and over again, that easy kind of silhouette. By the same token, he loved vaudeville um, as a child. His father took him to Keese Vaudeville in, in, in Indianapolis. He was born in Noblesville, Indiana. And at, at 10 years of age, he would go every Saturday with his father. And he loved the spangles and the ostrich feathers and the sequins and all, all of that stuff. So that kind of stayed with him, too, although as he grew more mature, he did them in, in a lush, 
refined, very chic way, not a over-the-top, gaudy way. But as a child, when you see all of that going on, you kind of love it. It's like, you know, colors and, and light and, you know, dazzling. Um, and he always had a bit of that. Um, he was dressed uh, as a child uh, in a sailor suit. Every sort of middle to upper class child, uh, male or female, wore sailor suits. And uh, a company called Peter Thompson started in 1901. Norell was born in 1900. And Peter Thompson was the, uh, the ultimate sailor suit manufacturer, children's manufacturer. If you were in the middle class or the upper class in America, you, you bought your children Peter Thompson's. They didn't even call them sailor suits. So we have in the, in the show, you'll see, there's an illustration of Norell wearing a Peter Thompson sailor suit as a young, young boy. And apparently that kind of stuck with him because he did nautical throughout his career over and over and over again, you know, and made it look fresh every time. Um, he also loved menswear, and it's really kind of important. In the book, there's a picture of Norman with Yves Saint Laurent around 1965, uh, obviously at a lunch that John Fairchild had arranged for them uh, and, and had a camera waiting when they came out of the restaurant. But Norell did pants years before Saint Laurent did. He felt that pants were a modern way for a woman to travel, not so much in the city, but to go back and forth to her Connecticut weekend home or to get on an airplane. He usually provided a skirt in the same fabric. So he, he felt, you know, you could travel in the trousers, and then when you got there, you put the, the, the matching skirt on. But he was a big proponent of that. He's a huge proponent of evening pajamas. He said, when, when you're entertaining at home, uh, you should be able to be comfortable so that it makes your guests comfortable. Even if they're in evening gowns, you, you should relax in pajamas. So he, 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 was, he, he was at the forefront. He invented what we now know today as culottes in 1960. Culottes is, is a French word uh, which uh, described a divided undergarment um, originally, but Norell took that and turned it into something more modern, both in terms of daytime and evening. And in the show, you'll see a bugle beaded culotte cocktail dress, and then you'll see the exact same dress done, at, not as a culotte. So he's also a very smart merchant, because he figured if you didn't like the culotte, he's got it for you as a dress, too. And these are just a handful. As, as Jeffrey said, the family came from a haberdashery family. But I think the thing that struck me is the level of workmanship. and. You know, Ellen, you've seen so many designers come through your stores. We've seen Ralph's magnificent work. What is it, and I would open this up to all four of you to talk about elements of his work that just sort of knocks you off your feet a little bit, and things that I think are also applicable to young people and designers today. Ralph, you answer that, Ralph. A couple of things. A couple of things. When you look at the sirens, they're a marvel to behold. You're not talking about sequin yardage where they cut and make a dress and then finish off the armholes with sequins and hide the seams. That, think of this, that silk jersey from a firm called Racine was the greatest jersey maker in the world in France. They were owned by the company Bucol. If anybody were in fashion, you remember. You, you do remember Bucol. And it, silk jersey, it was originally uh, knitted for Madame Gray in a 120 meter uh, uh, inch width so she could get her dresses and fluting out of one length. But Norell would get the silk jersey 
And the silk jersey bodies, as you see, are a turtleneck, a tube, a short sleeve, and they would put them on the figure, and each paillette was sewn on by hand while the jersey was already in movement. It wasn't done flat. It's astounding that that was done, and they call it ready to wear. When you look at the hems right. of his coats and dresses, if you, they have a dress in the exhibit across the street that's incredible, and you see it. The hem is undone, and there is a biased canvas or a hymo or a silk organza that's in the hem, so when you turn it up and it's piped, the, self is, the, the fabric is piped, it has a roll in it. It has a movement and a pure line as opposed to a curve or a crease. Coats and tunics were originally uh, all interlined with silk organza on the bias or on the straight grain to give them the shape and body. The wool usually had body, but it would give it also longevity. Now, these, 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 this is the way all clothes were made. Many clothes were made like that, and it really, they were. It was yeah, normal to absolutely. make clothes like this. But Morel would take it to an nth detail, and, and he was a perfectionist. Um, when he used fur, the sable cuffs and hems and collars were the most extraordinary bargosine sables. Um, when he made a linen sundress, it was constructed like an evening dress with shape and interlinings inside so the woman, as they say, didn't necessarily need the body that the dress was showing. The dress created the body ah. that was not beneath. Yeah, I, I just, what, what, oh, go ahead. Just, you go. Shortly. One yeah. of the things I love, my, probably my favorite quote of Norell's is, he never did bus starts. He said that bus starts were the sign of a home sewer, quote unquote. <laughs> and that 1950s bullet bra kind of look with the bus start, you never saw in a Norell dress. He would, he would take a, a vertical fold of fabric in a sleeveless dress and he would have enough ease so that it would go into the facing and the facing would be stitched, tacked by hand and there'd be enough ease in there to make room for the bust without having that ugly bust start. He would do princess lines, he would do ampere lines, he would do all sorts of tricks, but he never ever would do a bust start. Bust starts are ugly. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, but, but bust start made, bus starts made more people millions of dollars on 7th Avenue than anybody that I know. <laughs> every man, every uh, salesman used to love bust starts. But I just want to say, Going back to the past and the rooms, when I first came onto 7th Avenue, when I went to work, it was for the whole day. Because in my offices, in the offices, there were not just the show people, the showroom, but there were all my tailors, all, the, all of the sewers. And the most important person in the sample room was the finisher, the woman who wouldn't let a dress leave that room until it was touched by her magnificent hands. Every, and I wasn't making expensive clothes. I was making inexpensive clothes, Mr. but we were, the, we were taught to, to, that's the way we were taught. Now, if you see a dress, you see it somewhere on a, on a screen. But um, Norrell just took that to, to another place. He had the time. There's something wonderful about time, the stretching of it. Yeah. Everything is done so quickly now that it's hit and miss. 
And Jeffrey, I want to take the sequence just one step farther. If you could talk about the way they were applied and also how they were made, because well, that's an incredible today story. Today, when you see a sequin garment, usually the sequins are sewn on all, almost always by machine, and they're sewed on vertically or horizontally by a machine. And you literally see stripes of sequins. Norel sequins were tacked on the fabric, usually silk jersey, sometimes chiffon, and they were tacked in different places so that the sequins actually undulated. it. So one sequin, the tack might be at the top, the sequin next to it, the tack might be at the bottom. So they actually moved on the fabric, and of course, this beautiful silk jersey fabric moved on the body, moved with the body, it was easy to pack, and you would pack these dresses flat, you would never hang them because they would grow and stretch. Um, and that's why women really cherished and loved them. Now, from a practical standpoint, I mean, these dresses in the 60s were two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000, which was an enormous amount of money then. But women bought them the way they would buy artwork. Yes. They knew that if they bought this, as long as they maintained their figure, they would have this dress forever. <laughs> and they would look good in this dress. I mean, Donna Shore once talked about the fact that she had a sequin dress, uh, Norelle sequin dress, which she wore 150 times and loved it every single time. And she wore his clothes all the time. Before I even really sort of knew who Norelle was, the Dinosaur Show came on on Thursday nights. And every, every other Thursday, I would go with my father as a child to the barbershop, uh, Mr. Ruff's Barbershop in Washington. And we would go in, and uh, I would get my hair cut first, and then my father. And usually, the fights were on. And of course, there were, you know, five or six other men waiting to get their hair cut. And I would say, Mr. Ruff, could you change to Dinosaur? <laughs> I wanted to see what Dinosaur was going to wear, and invariably, he would change the channel, and invariably, it was the route. So. You, know, you know, Jeffrey, I was actually on the Dinosaur show. Where are you? Absolutely. She was a Pisces. <laughs> I was a Virgo. We got along very well. Well, she wore, she wore so much Norell, and she loved his clothes so much that once she came up to the showroom, and, and Norell said to the, to, the, to the showroom salesperson, who was a woman, he said, don't sell her anymore. She's got enough. <laughs> <laughs> but all of this comes back around. You know, Jeffrey and Ralph have been talking to me about the fact that these jersey dresses, when you get a chance, it's the, actually the center of the exhibition. We do a whole, what we call it the wedding cake with the chandelier. And these beautiful dresses are on there. And notice how perfectly all the sequins match the jersey base. Jeffrey told me they were all dyed, and he would stick, stick around for several days with the sequin maker until they got the color perfect. So the sequin matched the base fabric. And look carefully at the stitch work, exactly what Jeffrey was describing. Every single sequin is positioned a little bit differently than the one next to it. And the sequin maker was in Paris. He would fly to Paris with swatches of color and the fabric, chiffon or jersey, that he wanted to put the sequins on. And he would literally sit there with the dyer for three or four days until he got the color exactly right to Norell's liking. And then the, se the sequin maker would punch out the sequins, you know, in, in metal or plastic uh, to, to match. I mean, that's the kind of consistency and perfection that he always looked for in his clothes. You have to remember that all of that and all of the pave bugle beaded work 
because you can't say he did embroideries. He didn't like embroideries. No. He did pave work. Right. It was all done here. Can you imagine? That's right. No sending to Paris, no sending to India. It was all done either in his workroom or in small workshops on 38th right. Street. Right. Incredible. Jeff, everything was made in his, in his factories here yeah. in the city of in New, New York. York with the exception of the jersey dresses. The jersey dresses, which he f felt were the hardest things to make, as simple as jersey is, he said it's very difficult to make a very simple jersey dress, to make it fit properly so that it doesn't hang, it doesn't sag, it doesn't grow. And he had one tailor who he trusted with making all the original samples, and that man over, over watched over the production for all the Jersey, and all the Jersey dresses were made in one factory in New Jersey. And everything else was made in the city of New York. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, tell, tell everybody about the buttons, his buttons, because that was, buttons uh, were the big thing for Norman Norell. If, if, if you were a production guy working for Norman Norell, you were probably driven crazy several times over, because like the like the sequence in the paillettes, he was a, he was a master of wanting those dyed to match buttons to match the garments perfectly. And sometimes when he would do a double-breasted coat, he would and say say it was eight buttons, so that's sixteen buttons. Each button, as they descended on the coat, was a millimeter bigger, so it gave the appearance <laughs> of a girl being very tiny on top and slightly slightly bigger on the bottom. So imagine doing, having to yeah. figure out all Incredible. those different button sizes, and then the coat came in four colors. <laughs> you had to order all these different buttons and not mix them up and make sure that they match perfectly. Uh, it, was not, it was not easy, but it was certainly worth it. But all the, all the button shops were on 38th Street. Yes, That's yes. Right. And so you could yeah. go around the corner. Yeah, and the other thing, the other thing was his belts, which yeah. were very oh my important. God. Whether he had a thin, 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 tiny belt on a 1920s looking chemise or a very wide belt, he had one manufacturer named Ben King who made every single belt. <laughs> every belt was lined in leather, whether it was a chiffon dress and, you know, on the outside or a sequin belt, but they were all lined in leather and they were crafted, these belts, the way you would craft a handbag. Amazing. And they were beautifully, beautifully made, made. Ben King also made those little evening rolls for Norrell. Mm -hmm. Remember, these are when I may I for one second when I first got to New York in the early 70s. These are the people that were still working. There was a factory on Eighth Avenue in the corner of 59, 39th Street. Ben uh, uh, Max Kane, do you remember? Yes, I do. The name. Max the name. made. Norell's production, and then he went into Mr. Blass and Mr. Bean and so on. But as Stan said, there was a woman also in the factory that by, would pass, each garment would go into her hands before it was sent out. And so Norell had this satellite works room in Max Kane. That's where I started in that work room. You know, you know, one of the rites of passage for me from, from what I thought was an artistic world to the commercial world was when you would sit with the production man and he would say, you can't have a shaped belt. It's got to be straight. It'll cut into too much fabric and the price will go. That was the end of my artistic career. <laughs> But one of the things we also want to do um, when we're doing the show is to pay homage to a wonderful memory that Jeffrey had. And I was wondering if you could talk about 
your first mermaid experience, the, the nickname for those beautiful pave sequined gowns? Well, when I was uh, a month shy of turning 18, I was working, I was going to college at Pratt uh, in my freshman year, and I was working for Ralph Lauren, and I found out that there was going to be a Norell retrospective show at the Grace Rainey Rogers Auditorium at the Met. And it was a show that was put on uh, between Parsons School of Design and uh, the Met, the Costume Institute at the Met. This was 1972. Norell was 72 years of age. Mrs. Kagey, who was the uh, dean of the de fashion design department at Parsons, she thought Norell might be retiring soon. He had no thoughts to retire, but she thought he might retire, and so she felt that there should be this retrospective. So she asked Norell to give her a list of his top clients, and he gave her a list of 300 clients who had bought his clothes throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and early 70s, and she wrote to them and asked them if they would send back their favorite Norells to be put in this show. And they got over 1,500 dresses. And the dresses were packed in such a way that the, sometimes the boxes were bigger than this table. Um, they were stuffed with so much tissue paper and so much care as though they were pieces of art that when they started receiving these boxes, they really couldn't open them. They had no space to open all these boxes. So Saks Fifth Avenue loaned their warehouse, which I believe was like 15th and 11th Avenue. Something like that. And, uh, and that's, where they opened up the, that's where they opened up all the boxes. Michael Vobrak, who had been a student at Parsons and graduated in 1968, winning the Norell Award, um, told me a lot of these stories because Norell called him back to help him unpack the boxes and catalog everything and decide what was going to be in this show. So of course I found out about this show. I begged Ralph Lauren to get tickets for this show. He said, who is this Norell? <laughs> and I'm like, he's just the greatest designer in the world, you know, which is not what your boss Don't wants say to hear. <laughs> uh, but he acquiesced and he got tickets for Ricky and for himself and for Sal Cesarani and his wife and Buffy and myself. And we went in black tie on, I, th I guess it was October 14th, I think, October 14th. Um, it was a Monday night to this show, and at the very end of the show, the lights went out in the auditorium, and it was completely black, and you saw something twinkling like fireflies in the dark. And the lights came up, and there were 60 girls, all in mermaid dresses, from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, in every color of the rainbow, every length, emerald green, copper, gold, silver, white, blue, purple, you name it. And the audience went nuts. I mean, you would have thought they were at a Knicks basketball game. <laughs> I mean, they were hooting and hollering and stamping their feet. And, uh, and Ralph turned to me and he said, I'm so glad you made me come to this. And then a man came out in a tuxedo and you thought he was coming out to introduce Norell because it was the end of the show. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I regret to inform you, Mr. Norell had a stroke yesterday, and he died 10 days later, never having seen this show. So what we've tried to do is to recreate that feeling under the Swarovski hand-welded chandelier that I sketched out in the 
FIT uh, uh, crew built. And you'll see in the center of the room, if you see the exhibit, a lot of those beautiful mermaid dresses. They are spectacular. They're, what made him have the stroke? Where was he, at work or at home? Um, well, there are several stories which I really don't want to get into because I'm not sure of the, the truth of them. But um, uh, he went to dinner Saturday night. Apparently, there was an argument at dinner and he was very upset. And the next day, this part I do know is true because I talked to uh, John Moore, who was Norell's great friend and protege, uh, John Moore's fitting model, who I found and went up to New Pulse, New York on the bus to interview her. She said she was having a fitting with John on Sunday afternoon and the phone rang and she picked up the phone and it was Norman. And he said, I think I'm having a heart attack. Can you have John call the doctor? And so they called Norell's doctor, Dr. Kevin Cahill, who at about 86 years of age is still practicing on Fifth Avenue. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> he gives me my flu shots, actually. <laughs> and, and, and Dr. Cahill had him rush to uh, Lenox Hill Hospital. Um, they had a medically induced coma. He did have a, a, a stroke, and as I said, he died uh, without really regaining consciousness 10 days later. Well, we've got a few questions, but before we jump into um, the questions, I was wondering if each of you could give our audience your kind of takeaway. What do you want people to know and understand about Norell, especially the young generation? Me first? Yeah. Well, you don't have to maybe stand, can start. Uh, <laughs> about the young, for the younger generation, everybody is saying a common expression today what's happening in American fashion. And I think uh, one of Jeffrey's main projects with this exhibit is that some young people in fashion would take some f emotions and adjectives away and come to the conclusion that ideas like timelessness and quality and construction and and an ideal of perfection in the make of clothes are not old because that word has come to become synonymous with wrong. And I think if we get back in cue with uh, standards being higher in American fashion, we'll just be brought back to a, a, a moment where people who have this inkling like Norell and Galanos and could, could happen again. So I think uh, if young people would walk away and see the timelessness across the street, that's a great accomplishment. I hope they do. Um, I guess my, my biggest takeaway would be, number one, I don't think you can ever go forward without knowing where you came from. And the fact that, you know, two years ago, if I said the name Norman Norell to most people under 30, they have no idea no who idea. Norman Norell was. Yeah. Or, um, so. If, if nothing else, you get a history lesson uh, from the book or from the show. But even more than that, um, Norell, Norell had one thing that he wanted to do in his life, and that was to make women look beautiful with the clothes that he made. Men who paid enormous amounts of money for their wives and their girlfriends to wear Norell 
They didn't mind because they knew that their wives and their girlfriends looked beautiful. You know, that was, that was worth it to them to spend that kind of money. And so I think um, that is really the takeaway. I, I, I think most women, I think most women in this room, you want to look attractive. You want to look beautiful. You don't want to look crazy and, and like a freak. And, and I, think, I think that's what's wrong with fashion, a lot of fashion today. And, uh, and let's face it, you know, clothes are expensive. I mean, a, a pair of pants is $1,000 today for a pair of black pants with nothing on it. So why not go for the best? And, and hopefully that's, we'll have a some, somewhat of a return to that. When I saw the exhibit, which I must say is brilliant, um, I was taken by two things, one thing mainly, that almost everything in the exhibit could be worn today yeah. and look perfectly fine. Yeah. It was totally timeless. Yeah. And the other thing is, less is more. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the fact that there isn't any adornment, the fact that stuff is not junked up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the simplicity is what's brilliant. Yeah. It's great. Yes. All right, Stan. Oh, God, I got serious. I, um, I'm so proud that, that uh, in Jeffrey's rummaging through our past that we found a, a little bit of the foundation that this industry really has and has been pushed to the background. Uh, we are not France and we're not, uh, we don't have that, that long history of culture. But I, I feel that modern clothes today are a wonder. So I'm in a, not the same as, as, as I, I do think that the choices we have today are so extraordinary. They may not all be right, but they're so extraordinary that I'm so pleased to find that that all came from this foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And once we found this foundation, we really learned how to make a pair of pants, to cut the, a dress the way it should be cut, all came from this, and I, I, I'm, I'm happy about the future. I'm, I'm not so down on the future of, of, of fashion. I wish I was around a little longer. <laughs> you, you will be. Stan's father lived to be 105. So, <laughs> um, Jeffrey, let me take some questions from the audience. What was the most surprising thing you learned from your Norel research? I've been asked this several times, and I think. Um, it's in finding an old Women's Wear Daily article from the early 60s, uh, where it really talked about the business of Norell, uh, how many jersey dresses he sold, at what price, how many mermaid dresses he sold at what price, how many coats he sold at what price. The thing that really struck me was that uh, Norell said, if we showed 65 garments in the fashion show, and 64 of them were ordered by stores. And then a store comes back and orders the 65th garment that we didn't cut for anybody else. And they only want one because they have a customer who wants it. I would make it for them, he said, because I would never want to disappoint a store and I would never want to disappoint a loyal customer. Now, I don't know a designer on 7th Avenue who would do that, then or now. So uh, it really was surprising and it was really, it said so much to me about what this guy was about in terms of his integrity to his customer and in terms of his integrity to a store. Right. 
Um, Jeffrey, what was Norman Norell's inspiration for the mermaid dresses? Um, I don't know exactly. I mean, I know, uh, you know, again, his, his love of vaudeville and spangles and, and, and things that were shiny and, 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 and beautiful. I mean, he loved that whole sort of show businessy kind of kind of feeling. In, so, a w I, in a way, he summed it up, I think, for me, is that you could make perfectly balanced, sane clothes, but that you could also be romantic. Stan, you said that he could sort of balance both extremes, and I'm wondering if the mermaid was maybe a distillation of those two elements. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the relationship between Norell and Eleanor Lambert? <laughs> well, I mean, the relationship between the, Norell Does everybody and know Eleanor Lambert? Do you know who Eleanor Lambert was? Eleanor Lambert was the first PR person in the fashion business. She was the... First important one. Yeah. Huh? First important one. Yeah. First important yeah. one. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, every single great designer on 7th Avenue had Elna Lambert as their PR person. And if they didn't, they weren't great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she, she certainly helped shape the, the fashion industry along with Narelle. Um, she started, or she came up with the idea of the CFDA. Um, she, um, she was a great publicist. She, she was the person who put the whole idea of, of doing the, the fashion show at Versailles, which really launched the career of people like Stephen Burroughs and Halston. Um, and, you know, somebody said this to me the other day in the exhibition, and it never dawned on me, but Halston made hats for Norell in the mid-60s right. when he was still yeah. a milliner at Bergdorf's. Yeah. The first things that Halston made were in Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I think that he did that because he knew how successful Jersey was for Norman Norell. Um, so I think he well, was he, inspired. Yeah. I have another story, but I'll tell that later. <laughs> I mean, he loved Missoni. He loved Missoni, too, the Jersey. In fact, this will probably be the last question. Um, on millinery, um, this person noted that there was not really a focus on millinery. Um, and this person would like to know a little bit more about them. Um, why are they hard to find? And did the, the hats? Yes. Well, um, the hats were done primarily for, for uh, Norell's shows. Um, some of the Halston things were about as ornamental and sort of crazy as Norell ever got. Uh, and they were usually cocktail hats. They were real flights of fantasy, some of them. Most of the daytime hats were little sou'westers, you know, in suede or in matching fabric of the, of the clothes. Uh, Norell did one collection, I guess it was around 65 or 66, that was particularly sporty. He did a lot of like, uh, he did a lot of like gun checks and tweeds. He had the girls wear knee-high boots and Halston did a lot of like uh, stitched sou'wester hats uh, to go with it. But, I mean, one of the things that I loved about Norell was that except for jewelry and gloves, you really never saw a, an accessory. And when, when I say jewelry, usually it was just earrings, not bracelets, not brooches, not necklaces. Um, because I think he wanted his customers to envision what they would look like in those clothes with their own jewelry. So he kept usually the necklines very simple. And in a couple of cases, like the dress on the show with the Maltese cross, he inlaid the jewelry right in the dress, so you didn't even have to worry about jewelry. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. Well, 
I can't thank you enough. Obviously, this is far too short, but our thanks to Stan, Ralph, Ellen, and of course, Jeffrey. Congratulations. Thank you.